Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, Noel Gnard, mad about the boy. Um, BBC documentary, which is a lot of people who've been watching over the last few days. It strikes me as an interesting case of of how um, figures from the past nowadays have to be kind of reinvented in 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 terms of kind of contemporary reality. In that you now get um, a documentary about about. Noel Coward, the leads on the one thing that people never used to talk about. Oh, it's just, <laughs> almost entirely about his sexuality, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I noticed that. It's called Mad About the Boy for a start, you know. And the curious thing about Mad About the Boy is that he wrote that song for a musical, and I can't remember the name of the musical offhand, but anyway, in the musical, it's sung by a number of different women all about the same young man that they're obsessed with. Um, and he actually, around about this time, he'd recorded it at Abbey Road, but just for his, sort of his own amusement, his own interest, with him singing it, you know. And it was never put out. It wasn't put out until years later. I don't know, I don't know the 70s or something like that. Well, it wasn't put out, presumably, because it was him singing about a boy. Well, yes, it was just kind of inconceivable that, that you'd have a man singing that about a boy. Mm. Um, whereas now, all those years later, it is the most valuable um, Noel Coward recording. It's the most valuable copyright, which is absolutely extraordinary. Is it? Yes, it is. Now, it's the one that gets trotted out because it it's kind of, it's poignant, you know what I mean? Yes. Now, nowadays. Whereas it wasn't poignant at the time, you know, it was yeah. really interesting how our views of music change and views in, views of people. But he was um, absolutely extraordinary figure. I mean, talk about talent! It's just it's well, there's a bit very early on, isn't there, in the documentary where he's in an interview, and they said, "When did you first realise that you would be a star?" He said, "At the age of two. And then, and then at the age of twelve, I think he was the main breadwinner. For main the breadwinner. I thought that was really interesting. It changed the the dynamic of your relationships with your 
siblings and your parents if you're the one that's earning the money. And also the fact, which I completely forgot, that they actually came from not abject poverty, but they, they were humble. Humble. They were hu- very humble beginnings, and therefore his most of his work was about not only the upper classes and the money classes that he wished to join, but also the people that he wished to join being fondly lampooned. So that was interesting, wasn't it? It was, and I think he has that in common with, um, well, somebody of a later generation, Julie Andrews, you know, who who became a star by yeah. the kind of cut-glass um, renditions of, um, of musical comedy. She came from quite a humble background. Jesse Matthews, who was a huge star of uh, British musical films of the 40s, she came from really, really poor background, you know, and that's what you did in those days. You came from very humble backgrounds and you reinvented yourself yes. as a kind of stage aristocrat, whereas nowadays you get actors who come from quite wealthy backgrounds who re- reinvent themselves yeah. as kind of honey-handed sons and daughters of toil. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what they want to do. But he, he is... An absolutely exceptional person. And uh, one of the things that comes out in the film is, is he, of course, he couldn't read music. Or like couldn't, he had no idea how to, and taught himself to play. Absolutely yeah. astonishing. And when, when Completely you, natural. When you think of the sophistication of the stuff that he did, it, it is just absolutely remarkable. Have you ever heard, I was just saying to my wife last night, we were watching it, and I must go out and get this record today because I don't actually have a copy of it. I think 1955, um, you know, so after the war, he um, he, had, he briefly had sort of money troubles, I think, uh, and and uh, the uh, the the mob and so forth were beginning to open up Las Vegas as a huge, great gambling and resort town, and one of the ways he wanted to do it was to start attracting, you know, major showbiz talent to come and do residencies. And so he was approached to, you know, would you come and do a month or whatever at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas? And because the money was really good, so he went and did it. And, and it was there, a huge success. There it? was a recording of this. It's a live album. It's got a wonderful cover of him in a dinner jacket holding a, a cup of tea in a saucer, probably with his finger up. Uh, standing on a on a dried out mud flat near Las Vegas, really good photograph, and and there he is just doing his act in, in the in the in the desert in whatever it's called in Las Vegas, and it is just utterly remarkable how you know it's probably one human being you know backed by a piano doing the stately hands of England and the mad dogs and Englishman and all, all this kind of stuff. It's in terms of sheer accomplishment, you've rarely heard anything like it. And one of the things that I found really impressive about it every time I've heard it is he thanks all the technicians by name. Mm. It, he was that kind of old school showbiz pro that he knew it mattered like hell what the lighting man was called and how good he was at doing his job and how grateful he was for everybody who treated him really well. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful album. I'm going to go out and get it probably today if you still can. Um, but, yes, Mad About the Boy. So it's interesting that Americans kind of related to the, that, that whole act because it must have seemed so foreign and so extraordinary and so exotic. 
you know, their their understanding of the English upper classes. Uh, well, I suppose it's only like their their kind of fascination with Agatha Christie and yeah. uh, you know certain kind of um, stage aspects of, of British life, you know, um, and uh, and he'd he'd become you know he was a huge star via via films like In Which We Serve and things yeah. like that, which is you know still pop up. Uh, every year at, at Christmas time, and um, what's the one? This happy breeze, yes. um, which uh, I think has been. I think it's. I think that's on the telly at the moment. Then again, as I was reflecting the other day, what isn't on what telly? Isn't on um, I was also struck by how risque he was really early on, because the big success when he must have been. How old would he have been? Twenty four, twenty five. Was the vortex? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the vortex is about. You know, it's about a, a nymphomaniac socialite yes. and her cocaine-addicted son, <laughs> played by him, in fact. And that is an, that's pretty amazing in the 1920s, isn't it? And even Brief Encounter, I felt Brief Encounter, in some ways is quite risque because that was made during the war. And the idea that you're doing something, uh, looking at the idea of, of, of you know, extramarital affairs. But, the, but is, what, is, what's the amazing thing about Brief Encounter? And it's one of those films that whenever I go into a room and it's on, I just perch on the edge of the sofa. You finish up watching the whole thing. And watch the whole thing, because it's just absolutely masterful. The thing about Brief Encounter is they don't do it. They, they, they do they not. They try, do don't they? They try. They, they don't do it. Yeah. They walk away in the end. Yeah. That's the tragedy. And that's why you can never... You know, I know there have been attempts to remake it since, but you can't remake it in, no. in our times because nobody would accept that human beings would ever behave like that. No, they do try. They go, they go to the apartment of the friend, don't they, and he comes home early. Yeah. So they're yeah. foiled, you know. Oh, God. No, no, Another uh, thing I thought was that he seemed like a, 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 a kind of early template for modern celebrity, post-TV. Yeah. People really got to understand his kind of public persona and his brilliant one-lines. And the one-lines just, the one-lines just astonishing. And then he obviously felt completely imprisoned by the fact that everywhere he went, he had to be on as Noel Coward, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of his later life was 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 fueled by this desire to get away, to go and live in the Caribbean and just to, and to live in America and just get away from places where people expect him to be Noel Coward all day. He He used to get invited to parties and he thought he was just being invited as a guest. But what he would find is when he got there, they expect him to be a turn. Yeah. And uh, he was never sure, quite sure how he felt about that. No, I'm sure. So that wonderful Noel Coward song, I've been to a marvellous party, um, which uh, there's a wonderful version, Neil yeah. Hannon. Because there, there was a... Neil Tennant oversaw that EMI compilation about 20 years ago, again called Mad About the Boy, I think, where loads of contemporary artists did, um, did Noel Coward songs. Neil Hannon does a wonderful version of I've Been to a Marvellous Party. Um, and um, Noel Coward's original version of this, I mentioned it in my Abbey Road book, actually. It starts, it's a quite sophisticated piece of, of recording in the sense that it starts with him just talking, and then and then he turns into the song. It's as if you 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 have interrupted him in the middle of a party, and now he's going to do a song. 
Um, it's the kind of thing we got used to in recording, you know, years later. But at the time he did it, it was it was quite revolutionary. But no, he was um, when he went to meet Churchill um, during the war, and he he always fancied himself as as being a spy, you know, because he was he knew his way around. You know, he was he was. Um, you know, and became friends with Ian Fleming, didn't he, when he was living out in in, Jamaica. in Jamaica? Yeah, yeah. And um, and so you always wanted to be, you know, on government um, service. And they were pretty much saying, "Well, I think you can do the most good for us by, you know, continuing to perform and so forth." And um, but he Churchill wouldn't let him go until he'd sung "Mad Dogs and Englishmen" twice, twice. Imagine <laughs> this. You know, and even once, there's a clip of him doing it. I think in the Las Vegas show, and, and even once, you think the sheer mental effort oh to remember all those lyrics and the intonations and the fall of the meter and the movement before and after the beat throughout is absolutely incredible. In Bengal, to move at all is very is it very rarely done. It's very it? rarely done. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's it's absolutely incredible. It's, it's wonderful stuff. Uh, go and see it if you haven't already. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Last night, excitingly, was the final of the alumni Christmas special of University Challenge. And uh, as regular listeners will know, um, uh, David was in the team for Middlesex. And they were in the. there were 12 teams originally. There was a, a fierce... Uh, contention to get through to the semi-finals, the final four. They then uh, triumphed at the semi-finals and were in the final last night up against Corpus Christi. Dave, the kind of the oiks from the former Polytechnic of Middlesex, the jumped-up lovies, <laughs> were up against the toffs. Actually, it was like a, like a moment in the, in the young ones, up against the toffs from Corpus Christi. And, you know, I won't be uh, destroying any kind of... It won't be no spoiler to say that they, they won. It was we a won. landslide victory, won by a lot. At one point, I noticed, I think, there were six minutes to go, and I think you had 165 points... And they had something like 25. And I thought, this is fantastic. <laughs> but look, tell us about, tell me about the whole process of being on the inside of, you know, we've all watched it from the outside, but on the inside, how does it feel? And, and, and uh, how, well, very, how, how, how do you feel it works? Well, it's very weird when they, they get in touch with you and ask you, you know. I was, I was just kind of tickled to be asked. But then I thought, well, I'm not going to do it really, you know. And, uh, well, because of the risk, presumably. Well, a load of things, really. And because uh, that must be everybody's fear is that you're going yeah. to be put on. Asked your kind of, you know, you'll be put on your actual main terrain and not yes. know the answer. Yes. And uh, but it was only when my wife said, "Well, they're not going to ask you again." Yeah. I thought, oh yes, yes, that's true. So you're going to regret it for the rest of your life if you don't do it. You know. So I did it, and. Um, and they record it in Manchester, and uh, and they tell you who the rest of the team was. I hadn't met anybody in, in, in the anybody else in the team, uh, and you go up to Manchester on the train, and you sit on the train. You think, well, I ought to kind of, I ought to prepare, but you can't. I ought to revise. Yeah, for and what? Yet, for yeah. electromagnetic spectrum questions? Cannot be done. Because. <laughs> The only way you revise is you think, let me brush up on a few of the things I know already. Yeah. So so in your mind, you're asking yourself questions that you know the answers to. Well, there's no point doing that. Because no. you know, nothing like that is going to come up. 
And so all anybody is thinking when they go and get started is, oh, please don't, you know, make a fool of myself. You know, please don't let down the team and so forth. And so, you know, we we did the first um, in the first round. Well, you, I have to say, that the, and the, the record should reflect, scored the most massive hit with the opening salvo. You know, because they had the starters for 10, don't you? And you get three bonus questions if you get that right. And your start of a 10 was, uh, well, the answer was the Hollywood sign, wasn't it? Which you got in seven questions. And, the, and how did they phrase the question? You got it in seven seconds. I can't remember the whole thing. Uh, you know, where some of the which landmark started as a promotion for the estate agent. Uh, well, real estate. Uh, real right. estate in 1920. Well, I, I that thought, must I, be a fantastic I, I know feeling. what that is. Yeah. Hey, I thought it was a really weird thing to say. Utterly confidently pressed buzzer. N- never fearing for a second that I was wrong at all. It was really foolhardy confidence, really. But it was right. And so that then definitely gives you confidence going into it, you know. Because if you get if you get a bunch of those starters right, you, A, you get confidence. B, your team gets to gets to potentially accrue another 15 points. And C, most importantly, the other team doesn't score anything at all. No, they but, have to sit there so, in agony, probably so, knowing the answers yeah, to something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and so if you're moving forward, they're not. You know, so that's how those uh, those margins yeah. are open up, you know. And, uh, and But anyway, with the first one, we were behind for quite a bit of the time, but then we just slowly must have got on some kind of streak and we, we moved forward <clears throat> and we ended up we ended up winning that one. And uh, and they'd you know when you when you'd signed up to do it they said and if you get through we all thought ha oh, nobody's going to get through you know you know we want you to come back next week or whatever well um, you know one of my team fellow team members he'd he'd said well I can't come back because he he was acting in EastEnders you know so he, he had to be in London and so then you they bring in every team has. A fully qualified, i.e., been to the same Institute of Learning and so forth. Uh, fully qualified substitute who comes uh, up on the train to Salford, sits yeah, there, absolutely, the sits I mean, there, yeah, yeah, sits there and answers all the questions, and then goes they, back on the train with you, unable to join in the euphoria. I mean, it's yeah. quite a weird thing, isn't it? But in this case, you know, David was um, David Heathcote um, was able to be there the following week. And uh, and he was a more than adequate, uh, you know. He was uh, terrific. What a man off the bench. He did really, really well. good, really good. So you know, you have to go back the following week on on the Saturday all the way up to Manchester and so forth, and uh, and you, you have to bring. They say bring with you a change of top, just in case you get through to the final. The final. So we're all packed. The change of change of top would be. You know, when we arrived there, we all were all joking with each other. Have you got a change of top? <laughs> Not that you'll need that. Not that you'll all need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All that kind of stuff. And um, it's a very interesting piece of TV to do because it's so well established. It's been going on for so long. You know, I can remember it from when it started in the sixties. Yeah, Amber Gascoigne. I was thinking about this only the other day. I used to watch that with my late grandfather, who was, you know, he had probably left school at 14 and was not a person who come up with tons of answers and the university challenge, but he used to like watching it. And I remember one occasion when a question came up about Yorkshire cricket 
and he almost had a heart attack because he knew the answer, you know, yep. but he couldn't quite get it out quick enough. And um, you have that brief moment, you think, I should be on this. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you suddenly sober up and think, I don't know. But anyway, you you've done it for, you've watched it forever. Everybody knows how it works, but they still talk you through the rules and, you know, they'll make sure you, you understand uh, what you can and you cannot do. And then you get you in the studio, and there's your name, you know, at your place, which is kind of funny in itself, you know. And um, and one and thing, the, the voice of Roger Tilling will shout out. Roger Tilling, yeah, Roger Tilling, Middlesex comes, Hepworth. Every time you press your buzzer, Roger Tilling comes over and introduces himself before they begin, you know, because he's over on the other side of the studio yeah. doing that stuff live. And uh, and then Amal Rajan says says to you, if anybody feels unwell at any point, please put your hand up because we will stop, at the, you know, that. And they say that at the beginning of every recording because obviously it must happen. It must happen. It must happen. Well, you know, when you're suddenly told that the the uh, bonus questions are about the electromagnetic spectrum or <laughs> lakes in Switzerland or whatever, yeah, you probably do feel slightly unwell. Italian political party. Italian political is one of the ones you got, wasn't it? Italian political We'd, party. Yeah, I think we got one of them. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, the one I was so impressed by was you got um, – there was one about – a load of chemical formulas. Oh, you had God. to work out they were firework combinations, <laughs> and when contained in a firework, what colour would the firework be? And I think I'm right in saying you not only got the the, the starter question right, I think you got all three of the bonuses. Partly my luck. Well, yellow. You were told yeah. there were there were colours of the rainbow. Weren't yeah. They? So yellow, green. Oh it right. Was, <laughs> it was definitely there's a lot of luck. Well, yeah, there's there's some luck. There's. There's some listening to the question is key thing. I tell you what the key the key skill. If I if I had if anybody has me, he said rather pompously, to yeah. to account for my enormous success in university <laughs> challenge. It's this. It's this. I've set a lot of quizzes in my time. I've set a lot of quizzes, and so very often there's a clue in the way that the the question is framed. That the question the the person setting the question starts off trying to make it difficult, but then we'll add something that makes it a bit easier. And so I had a, a question that uh, concerned, concerned Wagner at Bayreuth, I think, and the answer was list. And I got that because they used the, the word, word mania. mania. That's right. And, and caused a certain mania. Yeah, you were thinking listomania. Listomania. <laughs> Ken it's Russell's worth a film, punt. starring Roger Daltrey. <laughs> you know, your only mistake there was when you gave your answer, you did kind of list, kind of question mark, and when you were told it was right, you went, wow. You know, What you should have done is gone, list, confidently. Yes. And then you know, even if it's wrong, it doesn't really matter. But if it's right, it looks like you do the answer. But that was, yeah. a, I mean, that was a, a very inspired guess. It was brilliant. But and it, also those bonus questions are complicated, aren't they? Because they, oh, they tell yeah. you the general area that you're going to be asked about. And then within that, there are all sorts of other kind of subcategories. You've got to remain, retain all that information in your mind. Before you and by on. the time you got to the end of the question, you're very often thinking, what exactly was the thing they were asking for? Yeah. At, at the beginning of the question. Yeah. Because I roughly know the area, um, but what's the specific thing that they were looking for? And uh, so we were behind it. Most of the first round, but we we you know we got in front and we won, and then the, the so we had to come back the following week and we played banger, and we were in the lead 
I, pretty, I think pretty much all the yeah, way through. Yeah, I think all the way through. And then they said, well, you're now through to the final. So you're playing Corpus Christi of Oxford. So this is Michael <laughs> Cockrell and various <laughs> kind of eminent, uh, eminent types. And it, it's really funny when I was tweeting about this yesterday because I was uh, I was sort of promoting it without saying what happened or anything like that. Charlie Higson got in touch and said, it'll probably be like, uh, you know, I think he took part in one a few years ago. The University of East Anglia or Norwich, whatever. Yeah. Uh, he said it was all going fine till we got we pulled some Oxbridge crowd in, in the final and they got crushed, you know. And so that was our. And you were thinking, well, we've got an Oxbridge crowd. And this, this is a complete reverse, which must have been a thrill for the for the for the BBC actually, because that's the result you want. You know, you want the the upstarts to triumph. I couldn't get over how how that worked, you know, because. We got in front of the final, and we were in front absolutely all the way through, I think. I think at one point we were, right. about, we were about 50, and they were minus five. They were minus five. <laughs> I nearly took a photograph of the screen. And <laughs> I, thought, I want to remember this moment. This is absolutely incredible. Because, I mean, to be fair, they were really sweet, and they were very generous, you know. Um, in defeat, if you can put it that but way. But it has to be said that your, your, in particular you actually, but your team's breadth of general knowledge was fantastic because mm. you were answering questions about Joan of Arc, about the Hollywood sign, about Ken Russell, Sidney Bechet, Bessie yeah. Smith. You were, you, 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 you were given a, a, a quote from uh, If by Rudyard Kipling, I recognise that. Was it J. Arthur Prufrock? Was some T.S. Eliot poem as well? It was um, Journey, Journey of the Magi. That's right, Journey of the Magi. And shown a picture of William, William Friedkin, which I thought was quite difficult, actually, even though actually he died this year, I think. He died so. this year, yeah. And then and the, I, my favourite answer of yours was, the, the answer was, I think, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's very impressive, Dave. Well, done all that. Yeah. We expect you to get Sidney Bechet and Jelly Roll well, or whoever yeah, it was. Yeah, you know. uh, yes. Very often the musical stuff ends up being quite quite difficult because I think I mean I don't know how much they well they can't be they can't be designing the questions for the for the people on the panel. But you know, you, you have a music round. There's always a music round, isn't there? There's two two picture yeah. rounds, one one music round. And I think the music round on the first one was here's the here's the you know the the music the manuscripts for the for the the, the tune of very Christmas, Christmas songs. Hits. <laughs> you had to work that out. Well. That was fair. I mean, both you and I can read music, and I I, I, I we managed with my with my two sons here, so we managed to get two of them. Uh, one of them was uh, here. It is "Merry Christmas" by Slade, wasn't yeah. it? And you, yeah. you were looking at those. Da, 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 da. But I, mean, I still thought it was very hard. Actually, yeah, that was hard. That was hard. So uh, presumably, when you are on University Challenge and it's Christmas, which gets a huge audience, I don't know how many million are watching that, but it's going to be a massive, massive audience. Yeah, people are coming from your distant past. You must be <laughs> yeah. getting in touch. Probably you people you went to college with. Yeah, you get. Oh. No, I haven't had. Have you had any of that? that? But I've had it from other people. Yeah, people get in touch from from the depths of Facebook and so forth. Yes, yeah. yeah I yeah. couldn't help watching this, you know, and yeah, um, yeah just, just kind of you discover how many people watch it because 
you know, when, when I was asked to do it, you were really tickled because you watch it a lot, don't you? Well, we you... watch it because one of our sons and his other half are addicted to it. We have a little WhatsApp thing when we watch it and we always say, oh, God, look at his shirt. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not sure if, uh, if uh, so-and-so on the far right answered anything yes, but, but we love it. No, we think it's fantastic. Whereas I also thought it was a really good thing for you to do. You know, it's a great, but it's such a risk. Because it could have, you know, you know, you could have been asked, asked something incredibly obvious and just in the heat of the moment, just blanked, you know. Well, except you see, it's not you as an individual, is it? It's not mastermind. No, it's not. It's not you in the chair. It's the four of you. Yeah. And if you if you don't know, you don't volunteer or anything, you know. So yeah. It, it's only when you try something and it goes wrong uh, repeatedly. I'm sure if you, if you guess an answer to a starter. A number of times to get it wrong. That must really bother yes. you. You must think I'm going to shut up. Or get two of those ones where you go in early and get it wrong and get yeah. docked five points, and then yeah. you've taken a bullet. You know that's bad. Yeah. So after we won, you know, they they we had to go back to the, the dressing rooms and 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 the room next door there was Ian Wright, uh, Gary Lineker, Alan Shearer, and so forth doing match of the day. You know. And uh, and they had the champagne laid out and so forth and and nibbles have a bit of a party and we all just have to say sorry we're just going straight to Piccadilly Circus get the train back because it was during you know rail it was a train years. strike the next day or something wasn't it yeah right. I couldn't afford to get stuck anywhere you know so yeah, there, there's been no opportunity to kind of celebrate with with the rest of the team of course we're all scattered to the four corners really so uh, I don't know if there ever will be any kind of reunion reunion but uh, it's uh, I'm, I have to say I'm glad I did it you did absolutely brilliant decision a try hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So we're joined by Alex Gold. Hello, Alex. Where are you? Hello there. I am in swinging Portland, Oregon, currently. You're in Portlandia. 
Portlandia, yeah. And it's, it's rather wonderful for us, and it's what time for you? Midnight, presumably. It's one minute past midnight here. Oh, right. Very yeah. good. Listen, I, I blundered upon uh, a, a, a secret uh, the other day. I discovered the secret of how to listen to live albums, which you would have thought I would have known long ago. But I discovered this in the course of the other day. For some reason, I was up here in my workroom noodling about, and I thought, I'll play, I, I played Joni Mitchell's Shadows and Light, which is a live album from, I suppose, late 70s or something. And I've, you know, I've had it for years. Now, I don't think I've played it for years. And, and I played it. And I thought after a while, I'm really enjoying this. It's really good. And then I realised why. I'd had two drinks. Of course. Two drinks. <laughs> and it struck me. This ought to be the secret of listening to live albums. Two drinks. Because you need to be slightly forgiving when it comes to live albums, don't you? You know, because they're not studio. No, none of that precision is going to be there. <laughs> Maybe you need to go the whole hog and just change into a, a T-shirt and a pair of trainers well, and stand up throughout the entire Well, well quite. Stand on a chair and punch well, the air. I suppose if you if you have a two two drinks as well, you're kind of putting yourself in in the mental position of someone who is at a concert who's probably Absolutely. had two drinks. Absolutely, and and also in the happy position of a person at a concert who's had two drinks, but doesn't have to worry about how they're going to get home. Is it going to go on too long? Do they want to go to the lavatory? Yeah. All those kind of things. No anxiety at all is there. But you've had the two drinks. Yes, you can put and, the concert on hold while you go and have a wee. Perfect. And all live albums um, just go over the top in one way or another, don't they? Just all of them, without without exception. The solos go on a bit longer than they would do in the studio. <laughs> there's more chats, you know. There's a, there's a kind of nervous tension to the whole thing. You know, they, they get a bit too excited with themselves. All those kind of things. All those kind of things that you find difficult to forgive if you're sober. Suddenly, two drinks, not a problem at all. Not can I, ta- Go can on. I take this one step further Go on. and suggest that the best way to listen to live albums, and albums in general, actually, is two drinks. Okay, fine. I, 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 can, I can understand that. I think you're absolutely right. But also, you should listen to them in the dark where you have no sensory distractions at all. Right. Um, so I did it with um, the list of albums from one of your books, Dave. I Every night I would go to my room and I would turn the lights off and I would listen to one of the albums in its entirety. Wow. Not being able to see anything. Um, it was the first time I heard Bob Dylan's first album and Dark Side of the Moon as well. And uh, experiences I don't think oh, I'll that, ever that, forget. You're not talking about live albums though. You're talking about albums, aren't you? You're talking about no, but concentrating I think it, it, on an album. It can apply to live albums and al- albums in general. Um, right. yeah, I think, yeah. you know, if you're listening to a live album that, you know, if you have no sensory distractions whatsoever, it's all at the privy of your imagination. You'll be transported to that venue completely. Yeah, and yeah, really. yeah. That's just my theory anyway. So, you know, that's just the advice I would pass on to anybody in your collection. You've probably got a load of live albums that you haven't listened to in years. Go and have two drinks tonight and go and listen to one. And, you know, 
But tell me I'm wrong. I don't think I am at all. <laughs> two drinks, take with two drinks. Absolutely anything, you know. Humble pie is rocking the film or, you know, absolutely anything you want will will suddenly make sense after you've had two drinks. That's my that's my theory. And I'm sticking to it. So Alex. Yes. Your favorite specialist subject, Liam Gallagher. Indeed. Uh, uh, is uh, is embarking on on a project with John Squire. Tell us about this. He is. He's made a secret album that's not so secret anymore. Um, <laughs> with uh, Stone Roses guitarist John Squire, and it just occurred to me the other day that he's done the exact opposite of what his brother's done. Because I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if Noel Gallagher collaborated with Ian Brown? And I realised they did that a few years ago. And I don't know, you know, that just just struck me as quite a funny thing. But um, in terms of the Britpop indie world, this is is big news. It's it's two absolute titans joining together, joining forces to create possibly the greatest noise ever heard by human ears. (laughs) I'm really... But no one's heard any of it yet, have they? it, I, I, it can't fail to be good, honestly. I, I don't think it can. I, I honestly don't think it can fail to be good. You've got Liam's voice. You've got John Squire's guitar. But that, that's um, a good point, because it's a sound, isn't it? It's a particular They're both sound. really good sounds as well, yeah. aren't they? Consistently yeah. really good sounds. Yeah, and it's you, not necessarily the quality of the songwriting. It's just that no, sound. it's all about the sound. I mean, the, the songs The songs are secondary news, really. The songs don't really matter. It's just listening to that distinctive chiming guitar sound. And, and and Liam's vowels on the same record together. It's double the good. It can't fail. Um, and also, it's the, the, those constituencies, Stone Roses and Oasis, <clears throat> quite similar, aren't they? And and mostly about yeah. nostalgia, aren't they? Mostly about trying to reactivate an experience that happened a few years ago. So that's a perfect combination. But also, there's a lineage thing as well because the Roses was slightly before Oasis, weren't they? And and they were a big influence, big influence on the whole. On them. Yeah. And John Squire, didn't he play with them at one point? He played with them at He Nebworth did. He joined them. Yeah, he joined them at Nebworth for, yeah. for a version of Champagne Supernova that went on for, I believe, about four days. Um, that was just the guitar solo as well. Um, so there is a bit of a history there. Um, but I really love it when these, these collaborations happen. You know, this is, kind of, this is kind of stuff that you wouldn't have seen coming 20 years ago for some reason. It just wouldn't have occurred to you that a member of Oasis would have made a record with a member of the Stone Roses. I don't think. And so the thing I was thinking when this was announced or, you know, leaked or whatever, I wonder if the the idea of kind of pre-release hype, the idea of building up excitement (coughs) is an idea that belongs in a vanished world, you know, a, a physical product. You know, here's the thing that is going to happen. You know, here they are in the studio or whatever, and then it it's it'll happen in three months' time or whatever it is. Start getting excited now. Whereas in this world nowadays, if if I don't know, if Apple are going to release a new iPhone, they'll just do it. You know what I mean? It's just it's just there. One day it's not there. Next day it is there. Well, it's like that Taylor Swift album that dropped in lockdown, wasn't it? There was nothing, and then all of a sudden it had appeared. Apropos of absolutely nothing. Beyonce, all those things. But what, because, also, what can you leak about it? You know, because the only thing you can really leak about it now is the sound of it. 
There's nothing more you can say about than the fact that the two of them are making a record. But you now need to hear little tiny bits of it, which they can't give you. So there isn't mm. any way you can really kind of drip feed that information. And here's well, the point. Here's the point, Mark. There's no reason why they can't give you that. The only reason they can't give you that is they don't want to. Yeah. It's because because anything that has been done can be distributed worldwide in the next five minutes. It can be done. Really easiest thing in the world. Upload it to YouTube. Any, anywhere, you can make anything available. Didn't used to be the case. Didn't and also the, the case. problem is if you leak, you know, even 10 or 15 seconds of this thing, everyone will then make their pronouncements to whether it's any good or not. Well, absolutely. See, because the, therefore, the truth of bands, it's always been this, is they love recording albums. They don't like putting them out. Because once they put them out, they, they print, you know, the verdict is in. And it comes in really, yeah. really quickly. Well, it's, it's and they worry that it might not be favourable. <laughs> and psychologically, the womb-like interior of a studio, it's where like, you're safe from criticism, can carry on endlessly tinkering because you're just procrastinating, aren't you? You're just yeah, putting yeah, off yeah. the terrible suppose, moment when you've got to be judged. I suppose if you spent months labour on this thing that you've completely convinced yourself is the greatest thing of all time, and then to have put out into the actual real world in which oh. people actually live, oh, yeah. and to be told that you're wrong, it must be devastating. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's that's the fate of most albums, isn't it? Really, it is. that's what happens. But we shall, uh, you know, we shall have to see in in this case, Alex, to see if it is it is as you say bound to be the greatest thing ever recorded. Or not. It can't fail. It cannot <laughs> fail. Because it's funny when you said earlier that was it Neil Gallagher made a record with Ian Brown and everybody's forgotten. Is that what you said it is, isn't it? Uh but they basically have, yeah. I thought okay. like, what? You see, I think there are loads of those collaborations that people totally forget. I find this all the time. Say, oh look, Santa's doing something with Santa. And somebody will say, Well, actually they did that twenty years ago. And that was and you go and look and say, sure enough, they did, you know. But a lot of the time, that's just people getting together for one song, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. David Bowie or whatever. E- or even Bad McCartney Morrison. playing on the Rolling Stones album, that, that kind of went, didn't it, in about five minutes? I mean... Yeah. Um, well, it'd be, uh, it only gets... But, but it wasn't it a full gets, record. No, but it only gets interest at the time because it gives... It gives BBC News something to talk about long before the record comes out, you know. Oh, and it features Paul McCartney or whatever, and everybody in the world goes, "So what?" Another <laughs> thing. But if you're if you're writing a news script, it's uh, you know it's very worthwhile. So Danny Baker sent me this thing yesterday, uh, Alex and Mark, yeah. of um, an extraordinary clip on YouTube of a young chap. <laughs> making the sound of Bob Dylan in the early 60s via, you know, via his desktop. And it's quite an extraordinary little clip, isn't it, Alex? Can you explain what this guy is doing? It's fantastic. Um, yeah, what this guy's doing, in a nutshell, is emulating the essence of a Bob Dylan record by um, playing all the instruments himself on his laptop and singing over it in the style of Bob Dylan. It, it's all intents and purposes. He's, cre- he's creating a Bob Dylan record that Bob Dylan has absolutely no involvement in whatsoever. And there's a lot of people on the internet doing this at the moment, uh, making records in the style of XXXXX. Because, um, so how do I how do I easily explain this? Um, he's not playing an instrument, is he? He's, he's moving around little clips on his laptop, isn't he? 
Well, he is, but he's also, he'll have a keyboard plugged in as well, at the very, very least. But what um, he does, as far as I could see, was he blocks in, you see the the uh, kind of digital screen with all the, the bits of music uh, kind of appearing, but he blocks in, doesn't he, on a keyboard, uh, a, a series of chords, chord sequences, and then he kind of reroutes it, so it, it develops a kind of shuffle. And then yep. he adds a bass, and then he adds drums, and then he adds a little tiny electric piano figure. And very yep. soon you start to hear that it sounds like something specifically off Blonde on Blonde, isn't it? It's that kind of that kind of locomotive kind of Dylan slight shuffle beat that he invented, the wild Mercury sound or whatever he called it. And then he comes in at the end and he sings that brilliant lyric about, I went to the doctor and I told him I was sick. He said, I could fix you up. It'll cost you about six. And I said, hundred or a thousand. He said, don't be so naive. So I picked up my sack and now it's time to leave. He's just making up this just nonsense. It also looks like Dylan, doesn't he, with his shades on. He's wearing, wearing yeah. shades, yeah. It's just superb. But isn't that what he's doing? He's just broadly getting the broadly. Kind of vague colour of what the Dylan backbeat sounds like. Well, yeah, the, the, the great thing about any half-decent computer these days is they'll have some kind of music creating software on them. So I've got a Mac and I use Logic. I used GarageBand before, which is basically the same thing. Um, and what these things act as is A, a mobile studio, uh, B, an instrument bank, uh, and C, um, a specific branded instrument bank so basically you can you can play you can use your interface like an instrument so everything is on a grid and you can use your laptop keyboard if you have no other keyboard available to play notes snap them to a particular point on that on that grid replicate them move them around create chords create movements create phrases bars and passages um but you can also there are also have a load of things that, that are called plugins and what plugins are essentially are sound banks of very specific instruments um so for example there's an abbey road instruments plugin now where you can play the lady madonna piano it's all been sampled it's it's it's, it's as legit as you'll ever get yeah. um outside of studio two um so if you know an artist well uh, well enough to emulate their playing style. You can also emulate their sound by virtue of your digital instrument plugins, which make whatever you're playing sound like the instrument you want it to be played on. Um, so there'll be a Hofner bass plugin as well. And as, as far as the drums go, um, a lot of this software <clears throat> has um, something called a smart drummer, which basically it's, it's a loop that is sensitive to, to the music that's being played around it and changes and alters and you can and, and pushes and pulls like a real drummer wheel it's basically an ai drummer that is intelligent enough to react to whatever else is being played around it it's it's, it's phenomenal it really really is so he's using all that to create this super sounds the piano the bass the drums whatever else um, yeah, to create a record that, that sounds like it came off Blonde and Blonde. How dispiriting to be a real drummer and hear that there's a machine that's intelligent enough to react to all that's going on around it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like an extension of the old drummer jokes, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. It's 2020 so do, you, do you sit at home doing this, Alex? Yeah, I do. I've done, I've done quite a bit of it. I think it's brilliant. And it's completely changed my attitude to, to writing stuff because no longer do you have to just sit in a room with a guitar or a piano and just wait for something to happen. 
to your head. You know, um, you can methodically build a piece of music piece by piece. And just like you, you can delete words off a word document as you're, as you're typing it, you can delete anything you don't like and pop something else in instead. So nothing's forever, nothing's sacred, nothing's permanent. Um, everything is eminently changeable and that makes the whole process, I think a lot more fluid. Um, and, the possibilities are endless to have all these sounds available to you instantly, you know, um, whereas 20 years ago, you'd have to pay 300 quid to go into a studio that may or may not have half of the instruments you probably want it to play. Um, you know, you've got, you've got the world sound bank at your fingertips. You know, there's never been a better time to make music. I don't think And you're seeing all, all the, all kinds of this stuff pop up on the internet. Um, you know, smart young things just having this, resource available to them to do something amazing with it and it, i think it's completely changed it the way people are writing music in general or approaching music composition that should make the process faster but but by having such a variety of options to choose from doesn't, doesn't it also make it slower because nothing makes the golden golden rule about yeah. all technology and this applies in absolutely in film and journalism and writing and music or whatever is it never makes things quicker Never, because no, it provides you with more options. More options. No, no, no. You say, I, I, be, like, we ought to just hear it with this particular color tone and this 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 sound. You know, this little kind of treatment because it nah, might make but, all the difference. That's where the discipline uh, uh, the the discipline comes in. There's an old adage that says. Uh, a mix is never finished; it's merely abandoned, and you have no, to teach yourself that's right. when to walk away. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it has made. I give a generally speaking, Alex. You know, mm. go back to the 1950s and 60s. Records were made quicker; they just were. Why? Why? Why were they made quicker? It was more laborious to make them in those days. They ought to be made more slowly. But no, well, they were made quicker. Nowadays, you know, things are laboured over endlessly before they're put out. Nothing's done quicker. I don't think it's necessarily that. It, it's the recording style as well. So in the 50s and 60s, you had a band in a room playing at the same time with a very limited number of microphones. Whereas now, a lot of, most, most ensemble recordings, you have your parts recording separately. I was once in a session where the drums, um, they recorded the drums first and taped over the cymbals so the drummer could still hit them, but they wouldn't be heard. And then they had to go back and they silenced the drums, but you could still hit them, but you wouldn't hear them. Um, but the cymbals were mic'd up. And I think that's what the Arctic Monkeys and Queens of the Stone Age do. And the idea is by, um, by negating the drums, all the cymbals, you are able to focus on that frequency uh, and get a bigger sound out of it. But basically everything is labored over. Everything is done separately. And that's why records are made slower. Um, but in terms of getting an idea from the start point to the finish point, it's never been quicker, I don't think. Because, okay, so say you're a professional songwriter and you need to put something together for a TV brief or whatever. You've got, you've got some kind of remit. Um, you can go into your little, you know, office room or whatever, open your laptop up, um, and you'll know exactly what kinds of sounds you need to choose from. You but can lay something... Isn't, isn't that a different thing? You're being told, you're being given a brief and so write X minutes of music to this brief. And I yeah. need it on Tuesday. I think we're talking about people sitting down here and waiting for the muse to visit them and coming up with some something entirely creative, you know, off a blank sheet of paper. That could take forever if you have all those options. Yeah, it could. It's it's just interesting. The contrast I always come back to is the difference between, between and we were talking about this the the other day. 
you and I, Mark, began our working lives as journalists in the days of the typewriter. The typewriter. The typewriter. Where you got you got a sheet of white paper and you rolled it in there and you had sat there looking at the white sheet of paper for half an hour before you wrote anything at all. Yeah, because you knew you typed something up and you got it changed your mind, you'd have to probably start all over again. Absolutely. <laughs> and you might not have that much paper. And uh, and Mark Allen, Alex, I was telling you, Mark Mark Allen was such a consumer of Tipex, which was the kind of liquid <laughs> correction paper. Yeah, that they used to say that Mark's copy used to rock on it the desk. It would be solid. <laughs> if you try and flatten it, great chunks of Tipex would, would break off like plaster. <laughs> Whereas once you move on to the you know the word processor. And nowadays, people put things on screen and then they, it, look at them. they put other things with them and other things and then they move the thing that was first and make it fourth and whatever. And they just pile stuff in there mm. in the hope that it eventually just clicks into some kind of shape. And what we're all doing when we do this, journalists, musicians or whatever, is we're fooling ourselves. Completely. We're trying to make things easier for ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. Because before Actually, we'd the, sit down and write that longhand before we typed it out. Do you know what is the most uh, creative uh, creative act anybody can do? Here's, Go on. I'm, just, I'm just making this up. <laughs> I'm full of the confidence of being a winner on University Challenge. Yeah, go on. Okay, here it is. And I don't care if you're a painter or a musician or a writer or whatever. Go for a walk around the block. Go for a walk around the block because going for a walk around the block will the, the the physical movement will will put blood in your you know to to your head, and you'll think about things, and you're likely to come back from that walk with an idea of what you should write down or what you should sing or whatever. You're more likely to get that that kind of idea away from the tools of of uh, of uh, implementing that idea than you are sitting in your um or your keyboard or your desk that's my theory what do you think i, I think you're I, I think you're absolutely right actually i think there's a lot to be said for the sub, letting the subconscious work at it as well you know the idea will be there you just need a bit of space to be able to let it gestate um but i've, I've just it's just occurred to me that i think the, the the big thing that these digital interfaces have done in terms of creating music and allowing it to be created quicker is they've shifted the focus of songwriting from um, melody and form to texture. If you listen to a lot of records that are made now, you'll see a lot, you'll hear a lot of stuff that's, um, that's, broadly looped from the, the core is broadly looped from, yeah, from yeah. start to finish, but they use texture and timbre to, to differentiate parts. So you won't write a bridge and a chorus in the middle eight. You'll have one chord sequence running all the way through and you'll be using different sounds to, um, to give it ebb and flow. That's a dance music format. Yeah, really, it is. Isn't it? Rather than the song, the songwriting format. No, I think it's becoming increasingly popular in, in guitar. No, guitar well, so. that's Mark was saying that's from. where it came that's from. That's where it came from. Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. You have yeah. 16 beats and you, you know, because oh, dance music basically, it's the same 16 beats or whatever and occasionally you have a drop section where it's quiet occasionally you have something where it's louder which is just a way of manipulating people on the dance floor but it's completely it's a totally different form of logic to uh, intro first chorus first chorus bridge first chorus outro solo out you know what I mean just, yeah, yeah. That's just, just the so, thing. going back to our friend with, the, with making the Bob Dylan record in his bedroom the, the one thing that one missing ingredient 
is is Bob Dylan. It's Bob Dylan, yeah. yeah. So Bob, <laughs> Bob Dylan will be the first one to say, no, don't play it like that. Just try it a bit slower or, or whatever, yeah. you know. And, 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 it, and the thing about Bob Dylan records is they kind of wander a bit. They're, they're not. And the key, the key expression you used earlier, which I think is so interesting in all these things, is snapping to the grid. Yeah, yeah so... Snapping, so- now, so he, grid is such is obviously a computer term, and uh, you know I can remember seeing this. I can remember first seeing this on um, on what we used to call desktop publishing. You know, when, when people designers first started doing layouts on, you know, on a screen, and you, they could get the text roughly lined up, and then you just click, and it would snap to the grid. It would just move, and and that assumes that there is a perfect place for something, and that behind whatever the work you're doing is, there is a grid. There is an ideal solution. And the computer will always seek the ideal solution. And so you you take the same thing into music, that's what happens. Whereas if it's Bob Dylan in the studio with a bass player and a drummer, it's not like that at all. There is no no idea. Absolutely, absolutely. And here's the thing. So before you start any, any session on your digital studio computer thing interface whatever um you'll set a tempo and that tempo will preside for the whole track and i I saw this thing a a little while ago and it was an analysis of various hits from through the decades um and how they and the one consistent thing was how they all moved the tempo always moved and it didn't matter who was playing so there was a police record um and, you know, Stuart Copeland is probably one of the most metronomic drummers of all time. Um, and this, this police record, I can't remember what it was. It might have been Roxanne, actually. I think it fluctuated by about 15 BPM um, from yeah. start to finish. And that just doesn't happen anymore. And you could argue that, you know, that fluctuation is the human element of the music. Absolutely. And what gives I, it, I'm sure that's its true. Character. I think you missed that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true. So, well, look, um, we should let you get on, Alex, and you go to bed in there in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. That's what you should do at this time. Whereas Mark and I have got to go out and, you know, we, we've got to keep keep the economy going so that the likes of you <laughs> can just, can just <laughs> bugger off. <laughs> bugger off. Is there anything we need to remind the listeners of uh, if they're not already a Patreon supporter they may care to consider doing this as a new year starts and if they want to do that friday night quiz yeah to take part in the friday night quiz and to uh, and to get priority access to these podcasts and anything else that we do where would people find uh, details of how to do that alex people need to open their computer up first of all and log on to the internet and then type snap in ww snap to the grid www.patreon.com forward slash word in your ear this podcast was brought to you by the word this message comes from bof sponsor ebay you'll know real when you get it it'll say ebay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.